scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And husband... How do you know whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. You may. Well, welcome again, and uh, welcome to Christ Community. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here. And fun fact. Um, I have married a good number of people, (laughs) which always feels weird to say, right? But as a pastor at weddings, uh, we have one of the best seats in the house. You get to watch as the young couple or the the newly engaged or the soon-to-be newly married couple walks and meets each other at the end of the aisle. Then you watch as their tensions turn to joy-filled tears, and it all climaxes to their first smooch, right, as a husband and wife, and it's awesome But before any of that goes down, when we're prepping for the big day, I usually ask the question, why? (laughs) Why do you want to get married? Why do you think you two should get married? And, you know, I've heard all kinds of responses from people. And and some of them are the hopeless romantics. Uh, They're sitting there and they got a twinkle in their eye and they say, why why do you want to get married? They're my best friend you know? And then they kind of snuggle up close to next to each other, and they look deep into each other's eyes with a big smile and say, I can't imagine anyone better to spend the rest of my life with. 
And it's cute, right? You know, even it brings a twinkle to my eye just thinking about it. But then, then there are the other extreme. You know, there's the crass answer. It just makes financial sense. Whoa, okay, buddy. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, and then they kind of shrug their shoulders and, and almost in unison without looking at each other say the tax write-off would be nice. Well, that's not that cute, is it? Um, but usually with Christian couples, the real reason, <laughs> the one that no one has the guts to say, the reason... They get married rather than spend the rest of their lives as friends, has this big little idea called sex, right? Uh, And whenever we talk about sex, it has this kind of squirm in your seat, heart race, awkwardness that can make lumberjacks giggle like schoolgirls. It's just, it's that weird topic that you don't necessarily bring up all the time. Well, we as a church, we've been walking through this letter called 1 Corinthians for a little bit now. And it's written to a a little urban church in first century Corinth. And we've called them a beautiful mess. Because they're the beautiful people of God, and yet they've got a lot of messes going on in the church. Which is a way of saying they're a lot like us, okay? They're not all that different from us. And when the Apostle Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, is writing to this church, he slows down to focus on the touchy topic of sexual healing. Okay, so if, if you've been with us for the past couple weeks... Um, you know that the Apostle Paul, he's kind of given it to the old Christians, and he says, look, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. And there's so much, especially when concerning our sexual lives, about who we were before we began following Jesus that tries to creep into who we are today as we follow Jesus. And there's an important transition in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul transitions from addressing the rumors he heard about that were going on in this first century church from Chloe and from others within the community to addressing specific questions, specific issues that they'd wrote the Apostle Paul about. And so this morning, as we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to tackle the complexities of marriage and sex and when it all hits the fan and uh, divorce is staring us in the face. You see... Just as we do today in Corinth, marriage was seen as something all about me and my needs. And this church was a mess. I mean, they had some married folks who were using theological reasoning for calling up the escort service. You had other married folks who were using theological reasoning to say that in marriage, you shouldn't ever have sex. And so you can imagine when there are some couples who are wrestling through divorce and remarriage with everything else going on. In this little church. And since we make marriage all about me and my needs, Paul hears the heartache then that still resides in us today, and he wants us to know how the gospel liberates bad marriages to be good marriages. And it's all anchored in this key idea. Your marriage isn't about you. Your marriage isn't about you. It's not about fulfilling your dreams or fulfilling your desires or balancing your checkbook or finding your soulmate. Your marriage isn't about you. So what is it about? That's a good question. Now, if you're single and you're here this morning, you're like, oh, great. (laughs) Why did I come today? Well, here's the deal. Uh, If you're single and someday you want to get married, learn this now. Don't check out because expectations for marriage are half the battle. Stepping into what is really what his marriage is all about is so crucial. And your dating relationships now and your future marriage aren't about you. Now, you may say, hey, I'm, I'm a single person, 
And I don't feel that tug towards marriage. Uh, I'm perfectly fine the way I am. Thank you very much. I don't need someone else to complete me, right? And I get that, and that's, that's well and good. And in a couple weeks, I want you to know we're going to speak specifically to the vocation of singleness, that God holds that up as something good and beautiful, and that God works through singleness, whether it's a lifelong journey and a gift, or you're single and you don't want to be single. But we're going to tackle that in a couple weeks, okay? But also here today that you have a role of speaking into marriage, into what it is and what it isn't, to your Christian brothers and sisters who have chosen to be married, okay? And actually, you have a very real and unique perspective. From the outside looking in, uh, single folks, you have a lot to contribute to me and to other married folks, because sometimes we get so stuck in the mire that we need singles to say, hey, wake up, married folks, wake up. So you may not be looking for a spouse, but you have a family here, and we need you, okay? Let me just say that from the get-go. We need your voice, and I'm so glad you're a part of this church. And don't ever feel pressured to get married because that's not the goal of Christianity is to be, you know, married with 2.5 kids. It's to be like Jesus, and that means you can be single or you can be married. So let me just say that. But you need to hear this because we need your voice and encouraging us in the ways of Scripture, Well, as we come uh, to our text this morning, um, I think we can all agree that relationships on a whole can be rewarding. They're not always, but they can be, and they're very, very difficult. And marriage isn't any, any exception here. And what I love about the Apostle Paul one of my favorite things about him is he doesn't try to give you like the, the three steps to a perfect marriage, you know, because <laughs> they wouldn't have listened to him in the first century and we wouldn't listen to him in the 21st century if he tried. And if I tried, you'd probably fire me from being your pastor. So we're not going to do that. I, I know, I know that this is a complicated issue. There aren't quick fixes. I've got a lot to learn here with my own wife and children, Okay. So we're coming all with learning caps on as we come to scripture, as it speaks into our lives. And one of the best things that we can give to one another, one of the best things we can give to our communities, one of the best things we can give to culture, one of the best things we can give to our church are great marriages, whether you are married or not. We've all got a role to play in that, okay? So as we come to our passage today, we're going to see how Paul teases out this idea, your marriage isn't about you. Your marriage isn't about you by tackling three of the most common misconceptions, not all of them, not the three steps to a perfect marriage, but three common misconceptions about marriage and sex, all right? So if you, if you have your Bibles with you or your devices, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find our passage on page number 955. And, and Paul, right out the gate, he tackles, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions that we have in our marriages. If your marriage isn't about you, he says, look, your marriage is about giving, not getting. Your marriage is about giving, not getting. And that sounds sexy, right? Stencil that in your bathroom or something. But but what on earth does that mean? What does that mean? Look with me at chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Remember, Paul's now addressing specific questions and issues that the church in Corinth has. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, period. Uh, Now, Paul's obviously addressing the issue of sex here, right? There's no doubt about that. But why on earth would anyone ever say, don't have sex ever, 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 ever? Whether you're married or not, just don't have sex with a woman um, or a man. Um, Why would someone say that? 
when you rummage around the history in the first century, you actually come to find that this is the perspective of pop culture in the first century. That seems strange compared to our pop culture, right? And it comes down to this. Everyone, or at least most people, had a dualistic framework of the world and the Roman Empire in the first century. What does that mean? That means you had two different realms. You had the physical realm, the material realm, where our bodies and where we interacted with other people, that was usually seen as either dirty or irrelevant. But the real realm was the immaterial realm, the spiritual, the realm of ideas. And if You could just get past all this physical stuff and this matter. Then you could get to what really matters, which is ideas, which is your spiritual walk with the gods. And all this comes from the classic philosopher Plato. And, you know, from centuries earlier, he continued to have influence in the first century. And I think he still has influence in us today. And the church had fallen into a pit that we have the danger of falling into as well. They were listening more intently to culture than they were Scripture. They were listening more intently to culture than they were Scripture, and they'd lost God's design for sex. And how did this shape out? It usually brought about one of two distortions. Because the body and the matter and the physical reality didn't matter, then you either treated your body as, well, nothing, and you had sex with everybody you wanted, wherever you wanted, or on the opposite extreme, your body was dirty, And so you wouldn't engage in any sort of sexual activity to hopefully become the better you you've always wanted to be, which is the world of ideas and spirituality, even if you're married. You see how this cultural perspective can skew God's good design for sexuality and how it was meant to be an important component to the mission and purpose of marriage. So for starters, we need to understand that sex is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's not dirty. It's not trivial. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a guy, okay? But really, sex is a gift, not the gift. It's not everything, and we can definitely live without it. But we can't miss that it was God's idea. It's not like we happen to just stumble into this and go, wow, that's awesome. You know, like, where did this come from? No, this was God's idea. And Paul, he knows his Bible, He knows his Bible, and all of this theology, all this understanding and God's design, it actually comes from Genesis chapter 2, when we see God wiring our bodies for relationship to engage and enjoy sexual intimacy within marriage between one man and one woman. Yeah, our God is that good. But sex isn't just a gift from God. What we actually find is that sex is a gift to your spouse. Sex is a gift to your spouse. Look with me starting in verse 2 of chapter 7. That because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Husbands should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. But the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is a gift to your spouse. And that's why Paul's so adamant that if you withhold sex, it's actually damaging to your marriage. Paul wants us to remember chapter 6, verse 18. You don't belong to yourself. You first belong to Jesus, and then if you get married, then you belong to your spouse. 
And when Paul uses this strange language of don't deprive your spouse, he's actually picking up on a financial term. Don't defraud each other, okay? You owe your spouse your body. And we got to understand this isn't gender specific here. And that can feel, man, that can sound really weird in our culture, can it? Because we know how that passage can get twisted. We know how that can get abused. And when we come to the topic of sex, we have, many of us have a lot more regrets and pain than we do joy in this area. But we can't miss the good news of what Paul is saying. Why this is good news. And why this was even countercultural all the way back in the first century. You see, this would have been appalling to every guy's ears in Corinth in the first century. Here's why. Everybody would have assumed that the wife's body was owned by the husband in a patriarchal society in the first century. Everybody would have got that. But then you talk about the husband. He's owned by no one. He's the master of his own destiny. He's the king of his castle. Come on. Like, who am I? And then Paul says, actually, in one fell swoop, you're owned by each other. This isn't just the husband. You're actually owned by your wife. Wake up. And he brings this equality to the marriage bed that was unheard of in that culture and I think is oftentimes overlooked in ours still today. A place of mutual self-giving. And we shouldn't be stingy with our gift, giving within marriage. Now, what that doesn't mean and what we sometimes twist Paul to mean, um, Paul doesn't mean that we can ever demand sex from our spouse. You see, we live in a pretty sex-saturated culture, and we've got all kinds of expectations that marriage is this sex utopia. Um, There's another religion that promises you'll get virgins when you die, but that's not Christianity because sex is so much more robust than that, okay? It's so much bigger. Sex is nothing if it's not self-giving. Sex is nothing if it's not self-giving. And this is where Paul's concession here is really helpful. Because there are seasons in marriage, there are times along the journey in marriage where physically you take a break from sex because of physical limitations or what have you. That's just a component of marriage. But there are also other times, Paul says, where you may as a couple agree to forego having sex to get your priorities straight, to spend some time in prayer, to remember that your whole marriage isn't about sex, but it's about Jesus and what he's doing, and it's about the other in your marriage, but then get back in bed, right? And he says, hey, do that for a little bit, but then get the ball going again, all right, guys? Keep, keep going and caring for one another. Anything outside of regularly, regularly self-giving when physically possible chafes against God, good, God's good design. When you use sex for anything other, when you use it for bribing in your marriage— When you use it for manipulating by rewarding good behavior or punishing bad behavior, then you're chafing against God's good design. Sex is meant to be that mutual gift that you freely give to your spouse. But even here, sex isn't just a gift from God to your spouse that happens in marriage. Sex is a gift for your marriage. If God designed this, he designed it for the purpose to carry us out into our design and who he's made us to be. And this isn't an optional gift in marriage. It's an essential gift that keeps on giving. You see, sex is one of those rare moments of focused affection where the mysterious recreating of that one flesh union takes place. I want you to listen 
to what author and pastor Tim Keller and his wife Kathy write in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy, but though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It's your covenant renewal service. If you're married, you should never stop working on your sex life. If you're single, yes, your sex life takes work within marriage. It's not that it's going to be perfect. And once again, putting un, you know, unrealistic expectations can be just as damaging. But sex is meant to be this living metaphor where you're giving of yourself in the bed so that it actually encourages self-giving love in all other aspects of your relationship with your spouse and vice versa. They're dynamically interconnected. And this is also why sex outside of marriage can be so damaging and destructive Because you take what's meant to be a lifelong gift and you make it a temporary transaction. Instead of a lifelong gift that continues to strengthen that bond of one flesh intimacy, it becomes a temporary, you can have part of me, and as you pull away, it fractures a part of your soul. And you begin to damage what sex was designed to do and continuing to create a one flesh union for a lifetime. And we went into more detail on that two weeks ago. And if you weren't here and you need to dig deeper into that, you can go online, listen to the podcast, I encourage you to do so. But hear this, your marriage is about giving, not getting. Your marriage is about giving, not getting, and that should transform how we view and engage sex in our marriages. If you're seeing your marriage bed as, or if you're not seeing your marriage bed as a place to cultivate your marriage, as a place to care for your spouse, then you're giving into Satan's destructive strategy. That's what Paul's saying here. It's interesting. He brings up Satan when he's talking about the marriage bed. That's weird. He doesn't always bring him up. But right here at this critical foundational relationship within a culture, within a church, he brings up Satan. And you know what the word, the title, the name Satan means? It means the adversary. The adversary. And ever since the beginning of time, Satan has been working to erode marriages. Right in the very first one, Adam and Eve, Satan comes with deception to begin to lack trust in God. And when sin and death enter the world, what happens to those who are naked and unashamed and one flesh with one another? They begin to blame each other. In shame, they hide, covering themselves with leaves. And now comes the distortion of power within the marital bond. All of this trickles. This is a key component to Satan pushing against God's design and his longing for us to flourish in his world. And Satan's still doing that work, whether it be engaging in sex before marriage or outside marriage or keeping you from engaging sex within your marriage. I asked my wife if I could say this before I said it, but hear this. (laughs) Satan will win your marriage if you overlook your bed. Satan will win your marriage if you're overlooking your bed. Because we got to be real with how broken we are, how sex is really an important component, that we have to be mindful in how we're engaging and caring for one another within the marital bond. 
Don't be overlooking your bed or you're going to lose your marriage. So if marriage and your marriage is about giving, not getting, what does giving look like? It has to start, I think, with forgiveness. It's got to start with forgiveness because all of us in here have someone that we need to ask for forgiveness for, for how we've been using sex in our lives, right? Where do you need to ask for forgiveness? Maybe you need to start with asking for forgiveness from God about how you're abusing his good gift. Maybe you need to ask your spouse for forgiveness, how you've been making sex about getting rather than giving. Maybe you have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiance. If you're not married, it's still outside of the bounds of God's design. And you're using marriage as a way of getting security, a thing that only the marriage covenant is meant to provide rather than caring for the other. And that's only possible genuinely within the marital bond. Maybe you need to start there. Begin with forgiveness. Also, where do you need to change and how can we help? Do you need accountability? Do you need some resources to walk through? Do you need to see a counselor? We've got a list of people we'd love to point you towards. If you can't pay for that, we'd love to help out because we think it's that important. You don't have to walk through this alone. Come and talk with us. And then on the bigger picture, how are you becoming the kind of person in all of your relationships that's focused on giving rather than getting? How are you becoming the kind of person in all of your relationships where you're focused on giving, you're focused on the other rather than getting? And, you know, here's the deal. This doesn't have to limit to the bedroom. It doesn't have to be limited to marriage. Because the Christian life, just like marriage, is a lifelong commitment in self-giving in all of our relationships, regardless of your marital status. And this is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. He's the one who gave up everything so that he could give us everything. And if he's given us everything, if we are his and we do have everything, it'll transform how we engage our relationships at work and our community, our neighbors, our friends, and especially our spouses because we've already been given everything and now we have this overflow supply to be generous towards others even when we feel like they haven't deserved our love. That's the only way genuine self-giving love is possible with Christ at the center. Your marriage isn't about you. And if that's true, if that's true, and your marriage is about giving, not getting. Yeah, Gabe, but you don't understand. In my marriage, I feel like I'm the only one giving anymore. And I'm so sorry if that's you this morning. You know, Paul doesn't call us to be a doormat. In the Christian life, we sit in a tension of consistently being self-giving, but also not enabling destructive behavior. Because when we enable destructive behavior, we actually destroy the destroyer and we destroy ourselves. And so we sit in this weird tension and what you're going through is not okay. Please come talk to me. But also, when marriage really stinks, which it does sometimes, and this is really hard to say because I know some of the pain that's going on in some of your lives. I know that what happens behind closed doors is often very different than what happens at social gatherings. Even with all of that, your marriage is about holiness, not happiness. Your marriage is about holiness, not happiness. My greatest need isn't happiness. My greatest need isn't a good marriage or a great sex life. You know what I need the most? You know what we all need the most? is for someone to rescue us. I was created by God for God, and in my rebellion, I chose to disregard God, and I was headed towards hell. But by God's grace... 
when I am Jesus's, I become holy. And that's my greatest need is holiness. And if that's true, if we can come to terms with what the gospel is calling us towards, if that's true, then maybe, just maybe, we can come to agreement as to what the Bible's talking about when it comes to divorce, okay? And I mean, it makes sense, like we said, with everything else that's going on in this little church in Corinth, that divorce is a sincere and a very real issue. And he, there comes a point, and I think in almost everyone's marriage, whether it's five years in or 50 years in, something happens, they change, you change, which everybody changes, and at the end of it, you, you start to think the only way to truly be happy is to, to no longer be with that person. That seems to be the only concept for happiness. And look, if our life is about happiness, then run towards happiness. But what if it's not about happiness? What if as Jesus followers, our first question isn't, what makes me happy? What if our first question is, what makes me more like Jesus? And you know, if there's anything we've learned from the poets throughout history, whether they're Christians or not, chasing after happiness is a futile mission, isn't it? It's not a destination. As long as we chase after happiness, it's always two steps ahead of us. The poets throughout culture, regardless even of their theological standing, will say, you've got to chase something else, and then happiness becomes a byproduct. And as Christians, we think the ultimate source of happiness is Jesus Christ, eventually. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it calls us to suffering. But if we really believed that, it would change everything, and we'd say, I want to be more like Jesus. That's my first question, not what makes me happy, because we're missing the destination. And I want us to look at verse 10 together. Verses 8 and 9, we're going to come back to in a couple weeks. Like I said, we're going to zero in on the, the vocation of singleness. But today, look at verse 10. Paul writes, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And what he's pretty much saying there is Jesus has spoken explicitly on this matter. So I'm just going to pretty much regurgitate what Jesus has said. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Which, if we understood everything else that Paul's talking about, about sexuality, this kind of makes sense. What God has united is not meant to be ununited. It's destructive. It's hard. And you do whatever you possibly can to avoid divorce and separation. And when Jesus prohibits divorce, like in Matthew 5, for example... He does, give, uh, he does give one permissive avenue, though it's never ideal, and that's adultery. And what Paul does here, though, is he gives another reason. He comes to the culture in, first, in Corinth, and a bunch of non-Christians that are already married, some of them start becoming believers. And so what you find is you have one Christian in the marriage and one non-Christian because the, the one non-Christian became a believer within their marriage. And their life is so radically different because of Jesus that the non-Christian spouse is like, I don't know if I want to deal with this. <laughs> you know, this is maybe borderline offensive. This is annoying. You're always talking about this Jesus guy. You won't go with me to temple anymore. What's going on? And Paul says, look, if they get so offended, they get so frustrated at you that they actually leave, let them go. We pursue peace. It's never ideal, but if they want to leave, pursue peace and let them go. And that's a really hard situation. Now, I don't think necessarily that this means that those are the only two exceptions. 
okay? And here's why. Um, I think there are situations of abuse and other extreme cases that fit within the same genre and what Jesus and Paul are targeting at. And let me say this too. Rare cases make really bad law. (laughs) So those become case-by-case scenarios and conversation and wrestling. But what's very clear across the pages of Scripture is that God hates divorce, and it's never, ever, ever, ever ideal. And it tries to rip apart what God has joined together, what was never meant to be separated. Now, what we do know also is that divorce is clearly not permissible because you happen to fall out of love with that person. They're not the same conversation partner they used to be. Sex life is kind of boring. They're kind of boring. You've been having way too many fights, and so you know what? It's time to end it. No, 95% of the times that we pursue divorce are not permissible within Scripture. We just get tired of people, and that's not a good reason for divorce. That's never a permissible reality for Jesus and God's design. You've just married another person, and you're just realizing it halfway through. I mean, that's the reality. We're broken people. Now, I'm not trying to minimize anyone's pain either. I know in a group this size, and I know some of you individually have gone through intense pain. And when we get to this topic, you have more regret and sorrow than you do joy. And I'm not trying to heap on guilt, okay? The gospel is at the center of the church, and that means this is a place of forgiveness and restoration, and you're welcome regardless of your marital history. But I'm also saying it's not easy, and I'm convinced one of the hardest places to be is in an unhappy marriage. That's why we do the really hard work before you're married. This isn't something where you just say, yeah, I'm going to go for it. Realize what you're stepping into. And Jesus sets the bar high and he says, look, he's talking to the disciples and he says, this is what marriage really is. It's made for a lifetime and it's so intense. And the rest of the disciples are like, maybe I shouldn't get married. And Jesus is like, maybe not. Because it's really, it's an intense decision. And Jesus upholds marriage, but he upholds the reality and the severity of marriage. And we have to see that for our good and for human flourishing, God doesn't want us to get divorced. We all want to be happy. If it's just about happiness, then you may, might as well run out of your marriage, but your marriage isn't about you and it's not about happiness. In verse 12, Paul says something interesting here and you kinda, I kind of wish he didn't. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's just an interesting little phrase. He says, uh, these aren't Jesus's words, this is me saying this. What we can't do is discount what Paul's saying here. Um, what he's saying is, earlier he said, I'm explicitly quoting what Jesus has taught. But now we find ourselves in a unique scenario, and I'm applying the gospel to actually apply to marriage here, okay? This is me as an apostle, and in verse uh, 40 of chapter 7, Paul says, and don't I have the Spirit of God? And he's speaking here as how the gospel is actually impacting a unique scenario where non-Christians were married, and now one of them becomes a Christian and the other walks away. And we need to listen to what he's saying. And I want you to notice how holiness is on display in this passage. If your marriage is about holiness and not happiness, it seems kind of weird how he brings up holiness. What on earth is Paul talking about here? Your spouse can be made holy and your kids can be made holy because you stayed in the marriage. What's going on? Well, what this doesn't mean is that your children and your spouse that aren't Christians are forced into Christianity against their will. Great, my mom's a Christian. Now the rest of us are. No, that's not, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Instead, in a very unique way, if you find yourself in a marriage where one of you is a Christian and one of you isn't, they get to see the gospel lived out 
and the day-to-day realities. They get to see, hey, mom's a follower of Jesus. She's making decisions differently than dad is because the gospel should change our lives. Hey, dad's a follower of Jesus, and he's, he's constantly serving mom in a way that, that mom isn't, who isn't following Jesus. You think that has to do with Christ? You think that has to do with the gospel? I kind of want that life more than I want the other. And you, you begin to see how the gospel becomes so tangible and proximate in that marriage. And that's what Paul's talking about. Look at verse 16. This is one of the most hope-filled verses, I think, when Paul's talking about marriage. He says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And, and what Paul isn't saying is, hey, guess what? Happiness is right around the corner. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, this is going to be really easy. But he does say, because of the gospel, it could get better. It can get better. Your spouse might actually be saved. They might come to know Jesus as you follow Jesus in a marriage that isn't equally yoked, that isn't someone who you're both Christians. Now, in order to prepare for this message, um, I reached out to some congregants in our downtown campus who have been on this journey of marriage longer than I have, and I asked a series of questions and kind of picked their brains, and you know, one of the, the feedback, one of the, the key quotes I got back from one of the couples was, we were glad we didn't throw in the towel, even though there was time, a time when we almost did. And you start to see this sanctifying element within marriage, this making holy. Maybe you or your spouse may become more like Jesus. Maybe holiness will happen, and maybe even happiness will happen later. You know, Keller has once said, pastor and author Tim Keller has once said that holy, or happiness is on the far side of holiness, not the near side. So when you're going through conflict and you're going through tension and really as you think about your life, the only possibility for happiness is a life without that person. Choose holiness because maybe on the far side is also happiness. And some of you have marriages like that where you've gone through moments where you thought, there's no way this is going to get better, but you stuck it out because you trusted Jesus and you sought holiness. And now this side of the darkness, you can look back and say, I'm so glad I did because I trusted Christ and I trusted his design. So what does this holiness really look like? Okay, we talked about what does giving look like in relationship. What does holiness look like? And it starts again with forgiveness. Because we need to know that divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. But if a divorce is, is a part of your history, confess it to God. And repent of the part you played in the brokenness. Maybe you felt out of control. And maybe you need to repent of your hate of an ex-spouse. This is the time of forgiveness, of releasing. Otherwise, it'll destroy you. If you've had a past marriage, come with forgiveness. Maybe the path your marriage is on right now is as soon as your spouse stops making you happy, you're ready to go. You're ready to leave. Well, that's not what marriage is for, and we need to repent. Also, what needs to change? What needs to change? Maybe you need to humble yourself and go to counseling. You know, once again, hearing from these couples who are further along in their walk with Jesus, one of them said the best, one of the best things they ever did was sought Christian counseling when they needed it. We have to be willing to humble ourselves and say, look, there are issues that are bigger than just you and I can handle, wife. There are bigger issues than you and I can handle, husband. And we need to reach out to a counselor to walk us through these because we're not equipped to do it. And we want to fight for our marriage and we can't do this by ourselves anymore. 
And it takes humility. It's not embarrassment. I think sometimes with counseling, we have this view that, oh, I can't make it on my own, so I have to go see a counselor. That's not it. I think it's one of the most healthy things to admit because there are far more times we probably should be reaching out for help, whether in our community groups, in our friendships, or in professional counselors. And that's a really good thing. So maybe that's step one. Or maybe your expectations or your priorities need to be reordered. What do you want more? To chase happiness or to chase Jesus? Once again, if we've learned anything from the poets, if we've maybe learned anything in our own lives, if we just chase happiness, we'll be chasing all our life long and left sorely disappointed. You know, there should be happiness in marriage. Allie is one of the greatest things that's happened in my life. And I think I've married one of the best women on the planet, you know. But if I'm expecting her to be everything, if I find all of my satisfaction and my well-being and my identity in my spouse, I will crush her. She cannot deal with that pressure. And I will suffocate the marriage, and it'll be a hell for both of us. That's not what we're designed for. We were never designed to find all of our satisfaction and joy in our spouse. Neither of us are strong enough for that. And the other part, too, is what about the kids? If your spouse becomes your idol, one day Allie's going to bury me or I'm going to bury Allie. And if she's everything and I crumble at the end, how am I caring for my kids? How am I loving my children appropriately when I've made my spouse my everything? And you start to see how that's just not a workable model in real life. That's why Jesus guides us away from that. And then lastly, just the overarching understanding, regardless of your marital status, are you becoming the kind of person who pursues holiness rather than happiness in all of your relationships? Are your relationships just about you and feeling happy? Or are your relationships, the friendships that God has brought into your life, the marriage you have, the family you have, Are those there for God to work through and mold us or just to make us feel good? What we see time and time again, that God is working to make us more like Jesus. Your relationships, your marriage is about holiness, not happiness. And happiness is on the far side of holiness. And this brings us to our last misconception that Paul tackles in our passage. And really, he tackles it throughout the whole letter. And we can't miss this because we desperately need to hear it. Your marriage is about his grace not your failures. Your marriage is about his grace, not your failures. Look, I grew up in a broken home. And by God's grace, I've seen how God has turned beauty from ashes in most of those relationships. You know, I grew up in a blended, though not intended, was very splendid home, right? Maybe some of you heard this. But not all of you had the same experience. Either you have a divorce in your past or you had parents that didn't make it and it wasn't splendid, it wasn't blended and it was hard and it was heartbreaking and it continues to have shrapnel in your heart and your lives. I get that. And I've sat across the table from some of you for coffee as you feel, Gabe, is divorce the unpardonable sin? I feel like I've just failed it for the rest of my life. My best days are behind me. It feels so hopeless. Some of you, you've sat across the table holding back the tears and you say, can, can God ever forgive me? Does God really love me? Is anyone ever going to love me? Is anyone going to be able to deal with my mistakes? 
I don't think my marriage is going to make it. Is God ever going to bring that special someone for me? And then to top it off, as we've been going through these past three weeks, it can sound like an endless guilt trip one after the other. Going from apathy to regret, from fear to shame, and your brokenness is just laid out raw. And you feel like a failure. And maybe you're sitting here this morning going, Gabe, I don't even know I'm coming anymore. It just feels so hopeless. What we can't, ref- we can't forget is that the context of chapter 7, it's seated under chapter 6, verse 11. Remember chapter 6, verse 11, and such were some of you. What were some of the things he talks about there in verse 9 and 10? Adultery faithlessness, idolatry, finding our identity in someone or something other than Jesus that was destroying us and leading us on the path of death. And such were all of us at one point. Yes? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel is extremely liberating. What you've done does not define who you are. This is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Where you've been, who you were, the power. This is the power of the cross, the power of God's forgiveness, where God can be both just and the justifier. Punish our sin all on Jesus, where he takes upon the wrath from our sin and then offer free forgiveness through the cross of Jesus that he might be the just and the justifier. Some of you... You feel like life can never change. But in the power of the cross, we find the power for transformation and restoration. And in every relationship, especially your marriage, it's all about his grace, not your failures. It's all about his grace, not your failures. Think about, think about the gospel. In one sense, all of us, and in almost every sense, all of us have failed God consistently, and he has every right to file papers. To send him to us and never show his face again and divorce. And yet God has signed the marriage covenant to his church in blood. Even though we're faithless, he is faithful. And how can we know? Because even when we were his enemies, he went and died on a cross for us. Now that we're a part of his bride, nothing's going to stop him. Nothing. You don't belong to yourself if you're a Christian. And God is holding on to you no matter your marital history. He's not going to let you go. And your marriage and all of your relationships, they're not about you. God wants to work through you for the good of the other. And that means he's working through others for the good of you. And because of the power of the cross, your marriage, it's about giving, not getting. And all of your relationships become about giving and not getting. And all of your relationships, and especially your marriage, become about holiness and not happiness. And all of your relationships, and especially your marriage, become about His grace, not your failures. This is the power of the cross. If we receive it, if we give our lives to Him, if we hand over our marriages to Him and submit to His design, He'll show us how. If you'll trust him, and that might be the scariest thing in the world, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know we've got 
folks who have always been single, folks who are newly single, folks who have newly married, folks who have been married for a long time, folks whose marriages are on the rocks, folks whose marriages are skyrocketing. I mean, and yet the gospel speaks to every single one of us. And we come not basking in our failures, sitting in self-pity, afraid to come before you, but because of your grace, we come thankful that your forgiveness is absolute, that it is far-reaching even to the depths of our souls that we feel are fragmented beyond repair. And so, God, may you do by the power of your Spirit the work you've promised to do in the gospel. For those of us here who haven't turned our lives over to Christ, may you please work in our hearts that we might surrender. For those of us who have surrendered our lives but have yet to surrender our marriages. By the power of your Spirit, may we just surrender our marriages to you. May the gospel transform us and transform our marriages and all of our relationships, whether we feel God gifting us for singleness, the long haul, or marriage, the long haul. God, you're good. May we not forget that foundational truth. You are good and you are loving even when we feel so unlovable. May the cross preach to us a better word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before Jesus went to the cross, he gave his followers a meal, a meal that we proclaim this gospel to our senses of taste and touch and smell. And it's here in common broken bread we remember Christ's body broken on our behalf. It's through poor juice we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And here at the Lord's Supper, we look back to the cross, but we also look forward. Because in the Lord's Supper, this is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Christ will return and his bride will be with him forever and we will celebrate in a great feast. It points us to the ultimate marriage that every other marriage is subsidiary to. So if you do come or if you're new here, Um, We ask that you be a follower of Jesus. The marriage supper of the Lamb is open to the bride of Christ, the church. But if you're yet to follow Jesus, we want you to know we're really glad you're here. Use this time to pray that Jesus would continue to reveal the truth of who he is and the truth of his design for you because he wants to know you and be known by you. If you do come, you'll come down one of the two aisles, circle back around to one of the two communion stations. You'll gather in groups of four to six, and you'll partake together. If you have a child here who is yet to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, our servers will offer a blessing in the same vein uh, that Jesus blesses children when they come to him. But before we do come, let us remember what has been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.